Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Martin. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! We're starting a brand new series today called This Is My Year. And two weeks ago, uh, our outreach minister, Matt Walker, uh, preached a a wonderful sermon. Uh, And in his sermon, he talked about uh, the success rate of New Year's resolutions. Um, It is a very low success rate. Uh, In his message, he gave two statistics that really stood out to me. Uh, Number one, according to the University of Scranton, they conducted a study that discovered that only 8%, of Americans keep their New Year's resolutions. And so the fail rate for New Year's resolutions is absolutely off of the charts. Another statistic that he brought up was a study that found that by January 12th, most people who have health and fitness resolutions have already failed. So if you were going to diet, eat better, and exercise, uh, by January 12th, you have already failed. Uh, today is January 12th, so welcome to your failure. Go out and have a cheeseburger, you know, after uh, a big greasy cheeseburger after service today. Um, listen, we all know that New Year's resolutions don't work very well. Uh, I'm pretty active physically. I try, if time permits, to go to the gym about four days a week, about four times a week. And and January is always a little frustrating to me uh, because the gym is packed. And you can tell uh, people who've who've got New Year's resolutions, they've got brand new shoes on, you've got husband and wife and matching windsuits. It's it's, it's really painful to watch, right? And and you, you can't really get around. You feel like you can't move. You feel like you can't breathe. But by the end of January, guess what happens? It's back to normal. You know, people have good intentions but they really don't follow through with these New Year's resolutions. I have failed over and over again in my life when it comes to New Year's resolutions. Uh, When I was 20, I watched a movie called Great Balls of Fire. It was a story about uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, I think, the the piano player. And so I made a New Year's resolution that I was going to learn to play the piano. And so I signed up for private piano lessons. I had this little 88-year-old woman uh, start to teach me how to play the piano. Well, after about three weeks, when I realized that I'm not, you know, 25 minutes a week with these lessons is not going to make me a great piano player, I gave up and I quit just three weeks into it. Now, I am able to play Jingle Bells, and Mary had a little lamb on the piano, so it wasn't a total failure. Uh, But when it comes to New Year's resolutions, I think this meme about sums it up. Here's to pretending that anything changes. Don't always follow through. And and as your pastor, as your lead minister, I, I pray that 2020 is different for you. Not just a New Year's resolution, but perhaps the beginning of a lifelong resolution. 
New Year's resolutions often fail because we try to rely on our own strength, our own power. We try to white-knuckle our way through these things. And they also fail because we just, frankly, give up too easily. So what would 2020 look like if we truly relied on God's power, submitting, submitting every part of ourselves to Him? And this is where we want to land for this series. How can we draw closer to God this year? How can we reach our full potential in Christ? Not just for the year, but for the entire decade. Is this going to be another year that we put off growth and holiness and loving people like we should? Is this going to be like Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day, where he wakes up and the same thing happens? It's going to be just another year of struggling with the same old sin, another year in which as followers of Christ, we bear no fruit for God and his kingdom. I hope not. I pray not. My hope is that, that for you, this is your year to grow in knowledge, affection, and obedience to God's calling on your life. And so with that in mind, I want to take you to our cornerstone text uh, for this entire series. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, and I, we're, going to read, we're going to read it first. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Picking up in verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Uh, I just want to stop right there and say, listen, how can we expect our children to follow Christ, to love God with everything, if we aren't teaching it at home, if we aren't modeling it for them. He continues, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You know, when's the last time we've had a conversation with our children, a deep theological conversation about the wonders of God in our house? And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. Okay, so this is a commandment from God. It's an, an, it is an imperative. God is not asking us to love him with all of our hearts. He's commanding us to love him with all of our hearts. In fact, in the book of Matthew chapter 22, Jesus quotes this passage and then he says, this is the greatest commandment. If you want to follow one commandment, this is the one you follow. It's the first and the greatest commandment. And so the Jewish people took this commandment very serious. Let's look at, again at verses 7 through 9, and then we'll chit-chat a little bit. Uh, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, talk to them when you sit in your house, when you're on a walk with them, when you're walking by the way, when you go to bed at night, uh, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. 
And so uh, the Jewish people back then and even today took these commandments literally uh, and they wear portions of scripture uh, in little containers called phylacteries uh, on their foreheads and on their arms. It reminds them to think about uh, God's love and God's purpose in their lives. They, they wear them on their arms to remind them to be the hands to show the love of God above all else in life. They also attach little containers called mezuzah uh, on their doorpost or on their doors. And so when they walk outside, they reverently rub that as they go on their way. Uh, or when they come back into their house, they touch it before they come back in the house. Every time they pass through the door, they would touch these scriptures. Jewish people still do this today. It kind of brings Psalm 121.8 to life where it says, the Lord will keep you're going out and you're coming in from this time forevermore. And so they put these scriptures on their doorpost and they wore them uh, because it reminded them when, and it should remind you and I, when we step out of our house, we're walking into a mission field. We have got to love the Lord with all of our hearts so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we walk from the world back into our house, we're entering a mission field. We've got little hearts that we're cultivating. We've got children that we want to grow in the nurture and the knowledge of the Lord. And so to them, it was a sign that the house would be a sanctuary for the Lord, a place where the word of God was loved, obeyed, and taught. It was, re it was a reminder to them back then and a reminder to us today to show our affection to God with every part of our being, our emotional being, our spiritual being, our intellectual being, and our physical being, with every part of our essence. And so if we could look at verse 5 again, Deuteronomy 6, 5, this is the money verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all. That's the key word there, all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all of your might. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I want to talk to you about what it actually looks like to love God with all of your heart. You know, the word heart in Hebrew wasn't referred to as a body part, a muscle that pumps blood. They had a broader understanding of the word heart in that culture. Um, the word heart was a place where we make sense of the world, where we feel emotions and then we make choices based on those emotions, all right? And so we still use phrases today that would allude to that, right? So a husband may say to his wife, honey, I love you with all of my heart. Now, he's not talking about that muscle that pushes blood in and out uh, through the veins. He, this means <coughs> I love you with <coughs> excuse me, every part of my being. All that I am, it belongs to you. I love you with all of my heart. <clears throat> okay, I want you to think about this for a second. Uh, none of us in here at our core really want to live passive lives, but we long to be filled with fascination and adventure. Uh, we want our hearts to be consumed by something. We want our hearts to be apprehended. And God knows this because he put this desire in all of us. Now, 
Think about the many things people sink their time and their energy and their money into. From hobbies to interests to relationships. People are looking for things to captivate them and bring them this sense of fulfillment. It's interesting that when Jesus lays out the most important commandment, when he quotes this verse uh, for mankind, he starts by saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Now, I would think that if we are told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, we ought to pursue what that means. And so what does it mean to love God with all of our hearts? And how do we even go about doing that? All right, and so here's the real question. How do you and I avoid having a half-hearted relationship with God? Now, to start off with, let me ask you this question. Have any of you in here ever been involved in a half-hearted relationship? A relationship where your heart really wasn't in it. Okay, um, maybe you were dating someone and they were really into you. You could tell, man, they loved you and they made it clear what their intentions were, that they would probably be around for the long haul. And maybe you didn't feel the same way. I mean, you liked hanging out with them. You liked kind of having them around, but you knew in your heart of hearts, this wasn't going anywhere. That's a half-hearted relationship. That actually happened to me in my late 20s. Uh, I was in a relationship like that. Uh, You know, uh, I dated this girl, and I felt like she was into me a lot. I mean, who wouldn't be? Uh, I'm I'm joking. (laughs) I I felt like she was, like, into me a lot. Uh, She actually started talking futuring about, you know, spending our lives together, this, that, and the other. And, man, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not feel the same. Now, I liked having someone to hang out with, but the love and affection wasn't there. It was half-hearted, and it really began to bother me, all right? And then February came, and Valentine's Day was creeping up on us, and I was like, man, I have got to end this before Valentine's Day, because this is just, I'm not, my heart is not in it. Well, you know, I'm like, a dumb guy. I just couldn't do it. I just thought if I was, you know, ignored her enough or was aloof enough, maybe she would get the point and she would break up with me. But it didn't happen. And so I found myself across the table at a Valentine's dinner. Uh, She gave me a gift. She actually bought dinner. uh, And after dinner, I I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And and I said, hey, we we need to talk. And, And basically, not basically, I broke up with her on Valentine's Day. I kept my gift and she bought dinner. That would show, I mean, what a terrible, terrible thing to do, man. But my heart wasn't in it. Now hear me and hear me clearly. There are so many people who fall here with God. They like having him around in case of emergency. They like the fire insurance that he provides, but there is no affection. Their hearts aren't in it. There's no affection there. And here's how I know there's no affection there. 
because there's no life change. These are people who have been Christians for 10, 20, 30 years, but have absolutely no visible fruit of a heart that's been transformed. They have not won one single person to Christ. They haven't even tried. So let's talk about what it looks like to love God with all of our heart. Because if we can love God with all of our affections and our emotions, it will change the course of our lives. And so what I want to do is I want to offer you four teaching points. I'm stealing an outline from Greg Samas. How do we love God with all of our heart? What does that look like? Number one, the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize that our affections determine our devotion. So first, let's determine what the heart's all about. Uh, the arena of my heart, of your heart, contains these powerful emotions and affections and desires. Our affections are deep currents that, that steer our lives. So think of them as, as a rudder that steers a ship. It literally directs it. And so to determine where our affections lie, we have to determine what occupies our time, what motivates us in our actions, what shapes our aspirations and their rewards. Because affections are waiting to be captured, they long to cling to someone or something, and whenever there's, these affections are, are, are found, our hearts are going to be right along with them. So it is possible to determine a person's true character by finding out what he or she really loves, what his or her goals really are. So to illustrate this uh, point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you three quick questions here, all right, to do, to do a little heart check to, to determine where your affections lie because our affections determine our desires. Question number one. What are three things, you right now, what are three things that you are most earnestly working on in your life? The three big things. All right, so think about this. For some, it might be, well, I want a new job so I can make more money, a new house, and a new car. Those are my three things. Well, that might indicate that your affections are in possessions, in, in material things. For, for others, it might be a, a girl that says, you know what, I just want to find a man, I want to get married, and then I want to start having babies, like lots and lots of babies. Okay, that's not a bad thing, but that would indicate that that person's affections are focused on earthly relationships. N none of these things are bad. However, the first and the greatest commandment is to love God first with all of our hearts. Second question I would ask you to ask yourself is what are, three, what are the three things that you love most? My dog, my cat, oh please, uh, right? What, what are the three things that you love most? All right, in, in my life, it doesn't always, it, this isn't always true. Here's the priority I try to keep. God, number one, because if God is first, everything seems to fall together. My wife, hear me, helicopter parent, my wife is second, not my children. My kids will ask me from time to time, 
Dad, do you, who do you love more, me or mom? Mom. What? Yeah, because in 18 years, you're going to fly the coop, and mom and I are in it for the long haul. All right, mom is second. So God, my wife, my kids. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are seasons in my life where it's hunting sports, my wife, right? And they get all discombobulated, uh, like, like you, like, like everybody. But what are the three things you love most? God should be number one. Question number three, what are the three things you think about the most? So when you're at work and you start to daydream or you're on a long drive and your mind starts wandering and, and you start kind of dreaming for yourself, what are the three things that consume your thoughts that you just think about the most? Like, so this is going to be a weird question. When is the last time you've ever daydreamed about God? I mean, when is the last time you fantasized about not getting rich or not being powerful or not having the government run the way you want or the church the way you want, but you've just fantasized about God, about what he's done for you, about how you can leverage your assets to further his kingdom, about what it would be like to be in his throne room in heaven, in his holy presence. I think my favorite psalm is Psalm 63. I'm not going to read the entire thing. This is actually a psalm written by David. And <clears throat> I said this a few years ago, and it got me into trouble, so I'm going to say it again. Um, when you read this psalm, it appears that David is dreaming about God, almost in a, a lustful way. Like, I just, I cannot get enough of God. Because he opens Psalm 63 by saying this. All right, this is something I would never say to one of my, my best friends, one of my boys. You are God, my God. Of course, I wouldn't say that. But earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You know I mean, do, do, do you feel just... The, the love, almost the lustful love that David has for God. And then down in verse 6, he says, On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of my night. You see, our affections determine our devotion. Number two, we have to understand that our affections follow what we treasure. Our affections follow what we treasure. So the devotion of our hearts is determined by wherever we find value as our greatest treasure. Okay, and so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, says something very simple, very plain, easy to understand. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, a, real, a really good condition of our heart is what we treasure. It, it's an indicator of where our heart is. You can tell a lot about what a person treasures simply by looking at two things, their checkbook and their day planner. Now, for those of you under 30, a checkbook was this thing, <laughs> right? I, I, I'm just kidding. So to put it in modern terms, our Zelle account and our Google calendar, right? I'm old, I, I still use a day planner. 
But you can tell a lot about what a person treasures, which leads to where their heart is by peering into where their money goes, how it's spent, and what they do with their time. Period. Where we spend our time and where we spend our money shows us what we truly value. It shows us where our treasure is. Now, Jesus gave us the answer on how to love God with all our hearts because the heart loves what it treasures. We have to seek a great treasure. When we discover it, love, the result of our affection follows. I want you to notice that Jesus, it's ironic because the heart doesn't come first, does it? Jesus says wherever your treasure is. So the treasure comes first and then the heart comes second. Jesus would say in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. In other words, I have found God. I have to have God. Everything else is secondary. I'm going to leverage it to, to invest in God because God is my treasure. Listen to me. In order for the heart to love Jesus completely, it first has to treasure him supremely. You tracking with that? You understand what I'm saying? In order for the heart to love Jesus completely, it has to treasure him supremely. Our affections are the outcomes of what we treasure. Nothing wrong with having a boat. Nothing wrong with having a nice house. Nothing wrong with, with material things if they aren't our ultimate treasure. When we truly encounter the Lord in his glory and worth, loving him with all of our hearts would be the end result. Understand that our affections follow what we treasure. No, number three, and here's where it gets difficult because there's so much coming our way. We live in America. We, we, we live in the greatest nation on the earth. Uh, I mean, we are wealthy beyond wealthy. All right, and so this number three is hard. Number three is this. We have to aim to make Jesus our greatest treasure. I'm going to be quite frank with you. There are seasons in my life when Jesus is not my greatest treasure. And I have to recalibrate. I have to get on my knees. I have to do something. And I feel like many of you are there with me at, at, at some points in your life. We have to aim to make Jesus our greatest treasure. You know, for the Apostle Paul... Jesus was the treasure of his life. He lost everything. He was a Pharisee. He lost his job. He lost his power. He lost all of his money. Some scholars say he even lost his family. He lost everything for Christ. And he, it doesn't bother him. He is supremely happy because he has Jesus. Philippians 3.8, he writes this. Indeed, I count everything as a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Every time I read this passage of Scripture, I always point out that the word rubbish there in the Greek is the word scubula. Let's see how well you're paying attention. What does scubula mean? Dung. It's all like animal refuse. 
compared to no, like your beautiful house and your beautiful picture-perfect family and your beautiful career and the way people esteem you, that is all like animal dung compared to the surpassing knowledge of gaining Jesus Christ. We have to aim to make Jesus our greatest treasure. Paul would write this in Ephesians 3.8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, now don't miss this phrase, the unsearchable riches in Christ. And so you have a picture here of a man who found a treasure that, is, that exceeds all others, Jesus. And there's nothing that comes close. There's nothing else that he desires. He is in perfect contentment because he is loving God with all of his heart. His heart is in rhythm with God. You know, the glory of Jesus is so amazing and so satisfying that once it's discovered, everything else kind of pales in comparison. When we divert our attention away from the Lord, our love will begin to grow cold. We'd be like the church in Revelation, the seven churches in Revelation, the church in Ephesus, where Jesus says, here's what I hold against you. You have lost your first love. You have, you have lost your way. You have replaced me, Jesus, as the centerpiece with man-made doctrines and teaching and, and doing the things that you want to do. Get back to your first love. Aim to make Jesus your greatest treasure. Number four, spend time with the Lord. You can't fall in love with somebody if you don't spend time with them. Can't be done. Now, let me, let me talk about this for a minute. Before I do, let me remind you that our foundations classes are available at elevatefoundations.com. And I would ask you to pay particular attention to sessions three and four. They're on how to sit down and study the Bible and retain God's word and how to pray effectively to God. It, it, if we want this to be our year, we've got to spend time with God. So how, how silly, think about this for a minute. How silly would it be if, if, if you got married, all right, and it's your big day, you're standing up in front of your friends and your family, do you take her? I do. Do you take him? Mm, yeah, I do, right? And, and, and you say your I do's, and we throw a big party, a big reception, okay, and, and then uh, you're walking out, and everyone's throwing rice or birdseed or whatever on you, and then you get in one car, and she gets in another car. You go to your house, she goes to her house, and you just go your separate way. And you say, listen, we're married, but, you know, I don't really want to spend time with you. I don't really want to live with you, but here's what we'll do. We'll meet every Sunday morning for brunch for one hour. We're not going to inter intermingle our, our money. We're not going to intermingle our bodies, quite frankly. We're, we're, we're not going to intermingle our home. We're, going, we're not going to spend any time together but one hour for brunch on Sunday. Now, there are some of you who are like, yes, please sign me up. You're in bad marriages. I would love that, right? But a good marriage, that's not going to work, is it? You're not going to grow in any type of affection for each other. Listen, 
So many people get saved or, or get baptized, and that's it. I'll see you on Sunday, God, for brunch every Sunday morning. I hope there's hot coffee and donuts in the lobby. I'll hear your little sermon, and, and that is it. In order to love the Lord with all of your hearts, we have to spend time with Him. How do we spend time with Him? You're not going to like my answer. Preachers have tried to avert this for years or try to package it so it, so it looks, it's simple. We have to be in His Word. We have to study the Bible. That is how God talks to us. And we have to pray. That's how we talk to God. Bible study and prayer. Spending time with God. To love God with all of our heart is going to motivate us to want to spend time with Him. <clears throat> As we kind of close this thing out this morning, um, <clears throat> I would like to say that I think there are many people in this church or in this world that don't love the Lord with all of their heart. Their affections are elsewhere. Their treasures are elsewhere. Their desires are elsewhere. And I think that one of the biggest reasons that a lot of people can't love God with their own heart <clears throat> is because they feel unlovable themselves. They just have this huge cloud of regret, guilt, and shame that's hanging over their heads. And they think to themselves, how in the world could God love me completely? Like I have wrecked my life. I have sinned over and over again, and I am just unlovable. And this may be you. You know, you may think, how, how can God love me after all I've done in my life? I mean, I have blown it over and over again. And so your loathing of yourself has left you empty and broken. You've written yourself off. But I want you to understand something. God has not written you off. God does not write anyone off, especially in including you. You are not <clears throat> a lost cause. He loves you more than your spouse could, more than your kids could, more than your parents could. He loves you more than you can imagine. And so no matter what your past mistakes are, no matter what your past sins are, however dark and dingy they may be, God loves you too much to give up on you. And so in the book of Luke, <clears throat> Jesus tells this story about a man who seemed to have it all together. He would be a leader in the church. Everyone would point to him as a holy and a devout man. The second man in the story that Jesus tells would be a man that most people would avoid in the church. He was a criminal. He was an extortioner of money. He would cheat you just as soon as look at you. He was an oppressor of his own people. He was a traitor, a womanizer, a man just wrought with sin and shame. <clears throat> Apologize. <clears throat> Something going on with my throat. <clears> throat> 
So they both go into the church to pray. They called it the temple back then. The first man was so confident by his own strength. He was one of those holier-than-thou people, right? The second man, was he was jammed up in life, and he knew it. He felt very unlovable. He knew his own sin condition. He felt absolutely unlovely and unworthy. He felt so far from God. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus begins with this parable. It says, He, Jesus, also told this parable of someone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like this guy behind me, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe on all I get. Like you may think you give good to God, but I didn't see anyone bringing any cumin or cinnamon in here. Like this Pharisee, he tithed on every little spice, everything he had, down down to a, a grain of salt. Verse 13. But the tax collector, now notice this. It's not on the screen because I just added this yesterday. But it says the tax collector standing far off. He's away from the altar because he knew he was unlovable. He knew he was unlovely. So he stood far off. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now hear the words of Jesus, verse 14. I tell you this, that man, the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the other. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, I think many people in here simply don't love the Lord with all their heart because they feel like that man. You stand far away from God Because you're afraid if you get too close, he's going to zap you with a bolt of lightning and kill you because of all that you've done. That is simply not the truth. You are not unlovable, but you are greatly loved by our Heavenly Father. Ernest Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called The Capital of the World. And in Spain, it's about a father whose son, Paco, is very rebellious. And he's had enough of his father, and, and, and he's done all kinds of things uh, to, to really disturb his father and, and drag his father's name through the mud, so he runs away. And, and, and he's broken. 
He's lost, but he's far from his father. Well, in this story, his father takes out an, an ad in the newspaper that simply says this, Dear Paco, please meet me in front of the newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. The next day, the father showed up, and there were over 800 Pacos there. It's a very common name. Seeking forgiveness from their father. Friends, God didn't take out an ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but he wrote a love letter to us. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you are loved by a perfect Heavenly Father. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.